Hello, and thank you for joining us for this week's episode, which is on the screenplay to the 2001 film Amélie, a classic of French cinema that you are likely very familiar with. We will be covering the full scope of the story, so if you haven't seen it and would prefer to wait, that doesn't mean you have to give up on this podcast. Just check our episode list and go to the 21st recap episode. There we cover all of the screenplays we've done in our first series, and hopefully that will direct you to some episodes you'll find useful and interesting. Today we're going to be covering the characters, dialogue, story, plot, and themes in Amelie, and I do think this episode provides a great analysis and lots of writing tips, so I hope you find it valuable. Without further ado, on to the episode. Hello and welcome to the 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan Vasquez. And today we are going to be going over our second foreign film so far, and it is Amélie, uh, released in 2001, or Le Fabuleux Distant de Amélie Poulain, as it is called in French. And it is written by Jean-Pierre Jeunet and Guillaume Laurent. And Jean-Pierre is the director of the film. Actually, we got the script in French, so this was a completely different territory. So it was literally foreign language because the same thing happened with Roma. We had Spanish scripts. And today we're going to do something a little bit different in which we are going to dive into the more specific aspects of screenwriting and that being character, dialogue, plot, story, and theme. And we're going to be discussing that at the end of the film and seeing how this movie fared in those different departments and kind of getting you know your perspective and my perspective on whether they did a good job or you know what was so good about it or what needed work um, as a way of recapping our entire episode so without further ado we're going to start with Amelie I haven't seen the film in, in a really long time and so watching it was pure joy for me I thought it was a it was a very joyous piece of filmmaking just the whole energy of the film the dialogue the the humor the beats and Amelie at the center is a very uh, well-rounded and well-layered character as well. Her world is populated by the most colorful characters and I think it's one of those movies that has like the best supporting characters really uh, that bring the world around her to life and I, and I really 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 enjoy the film. Just by way of introduction as well, mm-hmm. so the way that Jonet and Laurent work together is an interesting writer's duo. Because Jonet will write the scenes and Mm -hmm. primarily the visual elements, and he will pass it over to Laurent to write the dialogue. Right. Which is, when you think about it, is a really good way of working, Mm -hmm. especially if one of you has such a strength in a particular department, such as writing dialogue. Mm -hmm. And you'll see in the opening credits of Amélie, actually, that their credits are listed for scenario, which is the French for for screenplay for both of them and then there's a dialogue on mm-hmm. the on the next screen which mm-hmm. just says Laurent's name so mm-hmm. he gets a, a special credit just for dialogue writing which I think right. is kind of nice um, it's very interesting you don't really see that too much and uh, you know something to point out to the listeners out there is that you know the the structure of this French script is a little bit different there's there's scene headings but without the location so it just says you know, sequence one, scene one, and then whether it's interior or exterior or both. And it doesn't organize them by location, which is kind of the standard for a script. So I'm not sure if it's just this 
particular script or all French scripts. I don't know that, but I have a feeling that that's kind of the way they do it over there. Yeah. So even though the script would get rejected from most <laughs> from most screenwriting oh, yeah. festivals in the United States, uh, to me that was interesting mainly because we think of screenplays as blueprints for films, mm-hmm. a clear structure so everyone knows what they're shooting on a particular day. Right. And one thing that I it did make me think about though is that. There are many strong cuts from scene to scene, mm-hmm. especially in the imaginary sequences taking place in her head. Mm-hmm. And it does help to just write that out as one scene, as opposed mm-hmm. to trying to write down that you've got a location change every step of the way. That's true. I have seen American right. screenplays where it will just say a montage is coming up mm-hmm. and and avoid that process. but. Sometimes these questions come up when you're writing your own screenplay and you're right. trying to think, okay, how do I do that? One way is to include a sequence section, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah, it, it, it feels a little bit more organized, for sure. I think, yeah, you're right. If they were to categorize it by location, it might be a little bit um, messy looking when you're reading through it. I I felt that, you know, just from the get-go, the script does a really good job at kind of setting the tone, setting this sort of whimsical kind of... Um, quirky eccentric storytelling and it's it's got its dark humor as well I, I really enjoyed that and i think it also does a really good job at setting up your your character your main character of emily like basically the narrator who's a character in itself you know he's a very active narrator he he's kind of a main character in the film i feel it, i think it adds to the frenchness of the film when we mm-hmm. think of emily and we think about how much it has come to represent France and mm-hmm. and its culture. Mm-hmm. Having this narrator who's kind of like a literary figure who's recounting this story, I think it mm-hmm. it even ties into that whole sense of the identity of the pieces. That, right. Because the narrator is able to seemingly, like a novelist who writes magical realism, he's, he's able to see events that mm-hmm. are taking place in diverse locations all at the same time, slow yeah. time down and observe special moments. And I think this helps build into the sense of magic and destiny that are mm-hmm. prevalent throughout the story. Yeah, he's kind of God. You know, he can do whatever he wants. There's no rules when it comes to the, to the narrator. So from the very beginning, you know, we are set up who Amelia is through the narrator, and we get to not only see her as a child, but we see her as a sperm as well. So <laughs> we literally see her conception which is really funny. I think that already sets up the type of film it's going to be. I thought it was really awesome how each character that's introduced, he would be like, oh yeah, this character is so-and-so and this character likes this and then this character doesn't like this. And yeah, I, I found th- that to be very interesting. And that is a very powerful way of telling us a lot about a character without necessarily having to tell us any backstory. Yeah. And it's amazing mm-hmm. how these tiny little things such as just to pick an example off the top of my head, but Gina, one of the waitresses, mm-hmm. likes cracking knuckles and mm-hmm. just doing that with her fingers. Mm-hmm. That tells you so much about the kind of mentality that yeah. a person will have. So the first person we're introduced is actually Amelie's father. Mm-hmm. And we get a list of his dislikes and his likes. Mm-hmm which are all visually represented on screen as well, but Mm -hmm. by being written into the script from the very beginning, it's clear that these details are not inconsequential. They are intended to tell us a lot about him. 
And we can tell he's a very particular man, I mm -hmm. think. He's bothered by using the urinal with someone stood beside him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm trying to remember the other. He, he doesn't like uh, his swimsuit sticking to him when right. he gets out of the pool. When we get his likes, mm -hmm. I do remember that uh, one of them is taking all of the tools out of his toolbox and, and, organizing, it, and reorganizing yeah. it. So you get this sense of who this person is mm -hmm. with details about what they like and dislike. Yeah, And I actually think this is a technique that is often missing from screenplays that too much is left into the visual element mm -hmm. of, of a character and it's surprising how fast this technique worked mm -hmm. in terms of telling us just what to expect from from someone yeah it's almost like they're uh, the writers are doing a portrait in a way and because what they're saying has nothing to do with the story and then actually a lot of little sequences kind of when we go into amelie's imagination or she's got a certain thought like it goes very far removed from the story and i think it's just to create a like you were saying a feeling about this character and who they are and kind of what their their mindset is like you were saying and i think that i really liked it because of that like it wasn't trying to like move the story forward in that sense and it paid attention to character, which is very important, I think, to this film. Because mm -hmm. each character felt very unique and tangible, even if they had like a very small role, they felt very much alive. And it's interesting how these these opening pages balance so much about the information we need to know about the characters mm -hmm. with other details, and it still seems to move at a very fast pace and mm -hmm within a few pages you've learned everything you need to know about Amelie. And this is yeah. while she's six years old, but mm -hmm. there are things that are going to come back and be relevant to her adult life. It, it's yes. establishing these patterns of behavior that begin in childhood mm -hmm. and things that happen to her as a child that will define the kind of person that she becomes. Yeah, well, yeah, I just think like it, it's brilliant that it, it actually is trauma, but it doesn't feel like it it never gets heavy it, it it always adds a splash of humor for for it to not feel like a very heavy film but then you're conscious of it you get why she's the way she is you get why she's introverted why she's shy you know why she hasn't kind of uh gone outside her comfort zone and then other people start picking up on that as well but uh, we as an audience we get that established right away and i actually want to quote the scene where her mother dies, which I thought was just like the most hilarious thing ever. But I mean, her mother died, right? It's not that funny, but it's really funny. And I just really love the the narrator and s sort of his, um, uh, the way he delivers the lines, which are very casual. He's just telling very casual thing. He never does like a dramatic voice or tone whenever something terrible has happened. It's always very upbeat, which I think it's, is kind of what adds to the humor. It's very matter of fact and mm -hmm. everyday. And I yeah. think the everydayness of the characters yeah. comes into play throughout this entire story mm -hmm. in, in just how relatable they seem. Right. They all seem to be working class Parisians. Who, yeah. They're, they're not people who would normally have biographies written about them. They're mm -hmm. everyday people who but it's still about the joys of what you can find in everyday life and yeah. just these windows into their, their routines. 
I think just by this piece of dialogue, you know exactly the sort of tone that they're going for, which I thought was brilliant. So this is the narrator describing the day that um, Amelie's mom dies. And he says, uh, one day tragedy strikes. Amandine takes Amelie to Notre Dame to light a candle and pray for a baby brother. Three minutes later, heaven sends, alas, not a baby boy, but Marguerite, a tourist from Quebec, bent on ending her life. Amandine Poulon is killed instantly. And I just, <laughs> like, what does it matter where she's from and, like, what, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, the matter of factly, this mm-hmm. happened and that happened. This person, it just, it works so well with, you marry that piece of dialogue with the visuals that the director brought to it. And then you have this very unique story, and, I feel. And it adds the spice to the everyday life part of it. Those details, such as the fact this woman had traveled all the way from Quebec <laughs> to Paris and then ends her life. It's all about this system of probabilities in life, how how there is this sense of uh, coincidence and destiny in in how Mm -hmm. Amelie and and Nino will will meet and all of this stuff. Right. It's pointing out all of the different variables, even when you start with her conception right at the beginning and the fact she was conceived. Mm. At the same moment as someone else was scratching out the name of their best friend who had just died. Mm-hmm. It's it's adding all these little details in so it makes it seem like nothing is just a thing that happens. It's all related to everything else that happens around. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And that's in the title, you know, Destiny. It's in the mm. title, in the, its original title. So they definitely have an intention going in. And it's funny that you say that because uh, on the way over here, actually... There was a something I saw on the side of a of a wall, and it said, "You either treat every moment like it's a miracle, or you treat every moment like it's not." And I think it's kind of the same sort of idea where the writers purposely decided to make, essentially, I don't want to use the word fairy tale, but it feels like a fairy tale. No, I think there's I think this, that's a reasonable word to use. Yeah, for it's yeah. it's got this fairy tale quality to. Mm to the film and it has a modern fairy fairy tale yeah yeah it's a modern fairy tale and because there's a lot of improbabilities in it but it kind of i don't know it's just so brilliant at selling it to you a a couple of the other things that happen in her childhood which i just think are one critical to be in the screenplay and two worth Mm -hmm. repeating here as well is firstly that her father believes she has a heart problem um and that's because her heart starts racing when he's checking her heartbeat because it's the only time she has contact with anyone. With him specifically. With him specifically. Yeah. And then because he believes she has a heart problem, she then ends up being homeschooled by her mother until her mother's death. And so her only friend is a goldfish. The goldfish is suicidal (laughs) and will jump out of the the bowl, which, again, could be related to her imagination and maybe... Yeah. She's causing the scenes where, where the goldfish escapes. Mm-hmm. But she's distraught when it when it escapes. But maybe right. it's a cry for attention from her parents. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I think which ties into it is she's given this camera as compensation for the goldfish. Mm-hmm. And a, a neighbor tells her that her camera is causing accidents. Mm-hmm. And when she realizes this isn't true, she starts meddling with the neighbor. Mm-hmm. And we see this happen again in her adult life with the yep. the greengrocer, Collignon. 
Mm-hmm. Emily is not entirely about doing good to everyone she meets. It's more about having this sense of justice mm-hmm. in which she'll she never goes too far. She never does anything particularly evil. But she will meddle with people who need to be taken down a peg as yes. well. In her own way, she's a vigilante. And there's even a shot of her in the film at one point where she's uh, dressed as a mask of Zorro, just to kind of give you that visual. I think you're right. It seeds that quality in her that we later get to see her use a couple times for sure. Uh, I think, you know, just setting up her her childhood by the time we get to the adult Amelie, and I think it's about eight minutes in. So there's a good eight minutes where we don't get to see her in her uh, final form. And by the time we get to her, we have a kind of a good picture of who she is. And I think that works because then the story is fairly simple in a way. And it's very important to the story as a whole mm-hmm. that we understand that Amelie is basically a child in an adult's body. In some way, there is... There's a big part of her where she's not facing adult responsibility, mm-hmm. and which comes up time and again, especially in her, her mm-hmm. conversations with her mentor, the glass man, Dufayel. He keeps bringing this up, talking about her being a child. Right. They talk through a metaphor most of the time of the girl in the picture. But Yes, but they both know who they're talking about. <laughs> they both know who they're talking about. I, I love that, yeah. all of those scenes. But yeah, it's very important for us to realize, oh, she hasn't changed too much from that child that we were watching in the early scenes. Otherwise, it could be inconsequential to say, okay, we're going to dedicate the first few pages of this screenplay to someone's Mm. childhood. It needs to be relevant to the Mm. adult that they become. Yeah, I I feel like she's in some sort of... Um, state of arrested development where she hasn't gone through the experiences that kind of shapes most people because she wants to stay in the sidelines and even when she's doing everything that she's doing she doesn't tell anybody well you know it, it starts to come out but yeah she's just kind of in a way she kind of reminds me a little bit of the hunchback you know where he didn't go out you know he was just stuck in that bell tower until Another Parisian town. Exactly. There, until finally came a moment where he decided to go out to the festival and, you know, dare to go out there. So there's something similar in that where hers is more of an emotional cage that she's in or a mental cage where she just doesn't, you know, it, it takes a whole film for her to finally, you know, leave. She She's one of those people who is invisible in a city mm-hmm. in that sense that there are so many people around that she can easily disappear she can easily be unnoticed yeah so even though she works in a cafe uh, her and a lot of her neighbors are all suffering from the same sense of isolation and loneliness nino Mm -hmm. is as well it comes up time and time again with Mm -hmm. these different characters they they almost form a community of feeling alone you're absolutely right i do feel like that is a very central theme of you know loneliness and there's different uh, manifestations of it. You know, you have characters like Joseph who manifest that in an aggressive way. You know, Amelie is more on the um, suppressive. But yeah, there, there's. it's almost like there's ev- all these characters feel like a, a different facet of her own personality in a way. And more specifically, what she's kind of searching for in the film. And they all kind of represent different aspects of that. She seems to be searching in a way for 
a single person that will complement her life. Mm-hmm. But she also starts to find a wider community of people. Yeah. I think she wants to find connection. Her relationship with Defael, I think, you know, that was one of the more interesting aspects of the story for me. Seeing her kind of start forming that connection and also kind of retreat from it because she can sense that he can see a lot of her, too much of her, and that gets her really uncomfortable. Because they have had similar experiences. Right. Exactly. And that's and that's hinted at it. Uh, we never fully get into his backstory too much, but it's definitely there in his performance. By the way, that actor, Serge Merlin, brought so much humanity to that role. He felt like a really well-rounded character. He was really funny, and he was also very vulnerable, and I thought he did a great job. And so, yeah, that relationship, I think, was very key for us as the audience to understand her a little bit more. I think he was kind of our guide. What was brilliant about that is that the writer used him as a way of guiding the audience to discover who she is. You know, when he's out there looking and observing what she's doing, this woman with a glass of water and this painting that he's been working on for a while, and it's the last person that he hasn't quite figured out what her expression is or what her story is. And so they already established that this is her that he's talking about her. So we are him in a way. We're trying to figure out who she is as well. Even though we did start off with this sort of prologue of her life and how she was as a child, there is still this mysterious kind of quality to her because she doesn't talk very much. I was paying attention to kind of the the scenes in which she does talk and it always is in relation to her intention of what she's doing. Uh, there's no connecting with anybody else really and the times where it's usually just other people talking and she's listening mm-hmm. which is actually the first the first scene we we get most of the supplementary characters introduced in one go because we go from her childhood to her adult life and we're told she's become a waitress mm-hmm. and then we get to go to the cafe de de moulin which actually is called in the screenplay, it was called the Café Tout Va Mieux. Okay. I've pronounced it horribly, but means everything's getting better, Café. Oh. Which I thought was interesting, just that, I mean, they, they got to film at an iconic café in Paris, so they, they kept the name of the real café. But mm. it's interesting that the original name was Things Are Getting Better. Um, right. Again, tying into a common recurring theme throughout the story. Mm-hmm. So with the cafe group, we we very quickly meet Suzanne, the owner, uh, mm. Gina, one of the waitresses, Georgette, who is the tobacconist. And then there's the two men who are regular customers, which are Hippolito, the... The field writer. Yep. And Joseph, who is a very creepy man, who He's a, well, <laughs> is basically following around his ex. Yes, um, a, a disgruntled ex of one of the employees um gina yeah it's it's an interesting character because i think he's the he's one of the ones who doesn't have so much redemption throughout the story i know he's peripheral but there's kind of a sense that he's more there for the comic relief maybe yeah and 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 also just kind of i feel like he's a bit of an archetype or Mm -hmm. a bit of a stereotype of that kind of very insecure male 
who is, you know, he's just jealous of every guy who talks to his girlfriend and just that level of insecurity that then is translated into a lot of anger. But it, it it's funny in the yeah. scenes. So he is kind of the comic relief, yes. There's a moral in it in the sense that later on in the story, I believe, mm-hmm. Hippolyto kind of calls him out for his behavior and is basically pointing out how it's leading to more loneliness for him. Right. And I do feel like a lot of the cafe characters, they get a lot of time throughout the story. Mm -hmm. And I'm not certain that it was always used in the the best way. Mm. But I, I also feel like it was almost a showcase for this kind of particularly Parisian cafe dialogue that right. they wanted to show off of how these these type of people interact that might be lost on a foreign audience because we're not familiar with these these characters that someone in France might instantly recognize how mm. this these kind of people go to the these kind of cafes. Well, I thought it was really fascinating because they're all very colorful characters and they're all very kind of bigger than life. And every one of them kind of has a sort of love story that they're exploring throughout the scene or throughout the film in the background. And I think I agree because I agree in the fact that it doesn't really do anything to tell us more about Amelie in the scenes. I think it's just kind of coloring the world around her. But -hmm. I think what it also does subconsciously is that she is passive and it kind of brings her character a little bit more into focus. The fact that she's not really doing much. She's just hearing all these people talk. We're just hearing all these people talk. But where is she? What is she doing? She's not really doing much except she's just observing. Which is kind of the point. This is who she is. She just observes and she doesn't participate. Not when people can see her. She's comfortable participating when she's protected. Right. And that, that ties into this sense of character and mm-hmm. her I don't know if it is correct to call it maturity, but it is It is in some sense a willingness to take risks that she mm-hmm. has not matured to through adolescence, through a regular adolescence and childhood where she would have been challenged more by being around other children. Mm-hmm. She's learned to protect herself too much and yes. therefore is terrified of every little risk and mm-hmm. even joining into the drama of the cafe can be a bit of a risk for her. Yes. Um, there is one more character who's introduced who I feel was, seeing as we are complimenting but also trying to find points in screenplays where where we could make improvements, I feel the character of Philomene, who is the, the air stewardess, is basically forgettable. I actually barely even noticed that she was introduced earlier on in the film. And to me, in the film, it just seemed to come out of nowhere that Emily had a friend who was the, an air stewardess who was taking the gnome around the world to take mm. the pictures. And I feel like that character could maybe have been mixed in with one of the other stories or mm. just given something else. Because unfortunately, she just serves for, for the plot. She leaves her cat with Emily, so the cat makes some nice appearances throughout the film. Mm-hmm. And she takes the gnome on the world the world tour. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, this character doesn't really do much. No. 
I, I, I agree with that, yeah. And I, it's a, I'm just saying that is a bit of a shame because mm-hmm. it's better to have more memorable characters. There is quite a big cast here, but mm-hmm. that's why I feel like she gets lost very easily. Yeah, well, even you talking about it right now, I was like, wait, who? Uh, you're, you're right. <laughs> I'm just saying, she, technically in the screenplay, she's introduced along with all of these other yeah. cafe characters. Right. I'm not sure if any of her scenes were cut. Uh, that's a possibility too. Um, I think that it it already had a large array of characters, you know, and we haven't even gone into like the the people outside the the cafe because it's it's her neighborhood too. It's not yep. just like her workplace. You know, we're getting to meet everyone that she interacts with, so it is her world. She doesn't really connect with anybody, so there really wasn't anyone to really bring that out of her until she meets Defiel. I think he is the key to unlocking her. And as we later come to discover towards the end of the film, he plays a key part in in um in her journey as well. Yeah, one a couple more things I'd like to talk about from the beginning are we do see how her father has aged as well, especially mm-hmm. as a widower mm-hmm. with Amelie's mother dying in the in the opening scenes. And we see he's become quite static. He's still concerned about her health. Mm-hmm. He's worried about her heart, but he has just dedicated himself to tending this this garden where his wife's ashes are, mm-hmm. and we feel like he's not moving forward and he's he's stopped experiencing. He also has closed himself off. He mm. doesn't interact with any other characters except for Amelie in the entire film, so he's living another solitary life. Mm-hmm. Also, another interesting thing as every character has been introduced by the narrator up until this point, mm-hmm. it's a lovely technique. When we get to hear Amelie's likes and dislikes, she breaks the fourth wall and talks to us directly. Mm-hmm. So she's in the cinema and she says, I like to turn around and look at the faces of the other people mm-hmm. while they're watching the film. Mm-hmm. And that, that just adds to the magic of the film. It, it really reinforces our connection to Amelie mm-hmm. specifically as mm-hmm. our protagonist. Because she's able to talk to us directly. Yeah, I think it's uh, they did such a good job at having all these memorable supporting characters because there was a lot, but making sure that she's front and center and the most intriguing, the most interesting. So we never lose focus of her in this entire story. Even when she's in the background, she still has a presence. And yeah, that technique and 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 that says a lot about her too. You know, she's a voyeur. She yep. she likes to observe people. She just that's who she is. But it also tells us that she's special in some way in the mm-hmm. fact she can talk to us. I think yeah, it adds to this sense of magic running throughout the whole the whole film. Yeah, it's a very it's a very immersive film. You know, aside from the screenwriting, I think the the cinematography also was a, a very efficient tool into having us be a participator in her world. Because it constantly felt like we were being pulled in. Quite literally, sometimes the camera movements would pull you in into scenes, which I thought was brilliant. One of the things, we're probably going to talk about dialogue Mm -hmm. separately by the end of this. But one thing I think is very interesting when it comes to dialogue is that dialogue is primarily mandated by who the other character is addressing. Mm -hmm. In the most basic example, it's you wouldn't talk the same way to your servant as you would to the king in in a historical drama, right? Right. You you would want to write those two dialogues differently. Mm-hmm. And 
by having this distinction between Amelie talking to us mm -hmm. through breaking the fourth wall, you also have the distinction of when the narrator tells us something about Amelie. Mm. Because what that means is that the narrator is telling us something that Amelie wouldn't tell us herself. Because mm. we know she has the ability to do so, mm. but she's keeping that from us and the narrator is telling us. So I like that dynamic and that's how we find out about her. Love life is basically non-existent. Mm -hmm. It's the narrator that tells us that she had had a few flings, but it didn't really do it for her. So she essentially started to appreciate the small pleasures in life mm -hmm. and that she's dipping her hands into bags of grain just to, to get a, a nice sensation, a nice feeling, a nice experience in the world. But that does tell us a lot about her life. And so the narrator can, he can point out all of these details that she won't tell us. And the narrator can also tell us what to pay attention to, which mm. is precisely what the narrator does when he says an event is going to happen that's going to change the course of Amelie's life. Mm -hmm. And that's a very bold statement. When you're watching a film uh, or when you're writing a film specifically, you're thinking, how can I write the critical scene early on where mm. everyone gets hooked and everyone thinks, okay, something's going on with my main character and their life is about to change. Through this system that Jeunet and Laurent have created by having the narrator, mm -hmm. he can specifically call out this moment yeah. as this is the moment you need to pay attention to because her life is about to change. Which is August 29th. And funnily enough, that was the day I watched the film. Oh, wow. Which was really weird. Uh, yeah, no, it, 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 it's brilliant that they use that because it doesn't feel out of place. It doesn't feel like they're cheating. It plays with what the style is at that point, and it does hook you because now you are wondering, oh, well, how is it going to change? So it is definitely a, a hook that kind of does work. Emily finding that toy box is kind of the inciting incident for the film. I think, you know, it, there's there's been a lot of exposition in terms of like, this is who these characters are. This is who Emily is. And uh, this is where the story really gets going. She finds this toy box that belonged to someone that was there, you know, 40, 50 years ago. And it was probably belonged to a kid. She opens it up. I, I wrote this quote down. Oh, great. Because it is one of my favorite quotes from mm -hmm. the entire screenplay. It's... um. Only the first man to discover Tutankhamun's tomb could understand Amelie's emotion. Yeah. I, I love that. It's such a beautiful phrase. Mm -hmm. And it, it really gives us another insight into her imaginary world, the, the world that she creates in her head. Mm -hmm. That such, what for other people might be such a small and inconsequential event, for her becomes such a miraculous discovery. And this is where you start kind of falling in love with her a little bit. At least I did, you know, because all of a sudden she's got this idea, like what it would mean for the person to find this, that emotional value. And she feels like that is something that she can give. It's a gift that she can give. And, you know, this is where the story picks up. If she is successful in finding this person and this person has that emotional reaction that she would expect, then she will continue to do good deeds and not tell anyone about it. So she, this is kind of like her trial run. Um, so she starts investigating. And it's interesting how this is called out as a decision, because when we talk about characters, decisions are a key mm -hmm. element to who a character is. Mm -hmm. And this is very specifically called out as 
a decision that she makes in the spur of the moment, finding this box, she decides, mm-hmm. I'm going to do this thing. I'm, I'm going to do something about this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not just a moment, which was beautiful enough that she found this box mm. and the way it's described as such an amazing discovery. That's meaningless in terms of story unless a decision results from it. Right. And tells us a lot about her in the process of, you know, where her, her heart and her mind is. And, and you're right, it, it gives you insight into her imagination, which we will continue to fully dive into as the story progresses when even her imagination speaking to us, just like the narrator and her uh, speak to the camera. So, yeah, so she goes on this journey and her first clue is the landlord lady. La Concierge. La Concierge, uh, and her name was Madeleine. I yeah, I, I I think they changed her surname in the English subtitles I had. Mm. Uh, but I believe her real name is Madeleine Wallace. So she is the landlord lady, and then so Emily goes to uh, find her at her apartment. And even her reaction to Emily going up to her kind of tells us a little bit more about her. Oh, you're the girl that never that i never see mm-hmm. and um and so she decides to tell amelie her life story uh, and it's this is something that um foreign audiences might not get as much mm-hmm. but in continental europe these uh residential buildings mm-hmm. especially 20 30 or so more years ago mm-hmm. the the porter the person who lived on site at at the residence, knows all of the neighbors. They right. they help them with, uh, you know, if there's a repair to be done, something's broken in the radiator, whatever it is. There's a sense of community within buildings. Right. In in certain, it it's not as common as in many of these countries. They have sitcoms set in the building, and all of the neighbors are uh, mm. getting involved in each other's lives. It it might not happen to that extreme, but it is a it would be strange that she hasn't seen her very much, I think. Got it, yeah. It's more common that they would be greeting each other every day, that they would expect to see each other. Yeah, no, I, to- yeah, I totally get that. Um, so, yeah, so, you know, the the landlord lady, Mad- Madeline, decides to tell her life story, and obviously it's about love. Again, this is a mm-hmm. constant thing with these supporting characters. It's about their conflicts in love. And, uh, and it's interesting how... As an audience, we, we're we now on board with Amelie as the protagonist, and she's got this goal, and the goal is to get this box back to its owner. Mm-hmm. So when uh, Mado is, is talking about her her husband who died many years ago, yeah, we want to tune it out. We want to say, okay, but get to the point. We, we need to know how to meet the guy who she re- needs to return the box to. Mm-hmm. And yet that sense of not listening to others is exactly what this film Amelie is warning us about. And we see just how mm. much, even though it wasn't Amelie's intention to to listen to her story, mm-hmm. she's able to affect her life by knowing more about her when she starts doing good for people. And mm. so this isn't an inconsequential conversation mm. where two people are talking past each other. Mm-hmm. This actually sets up an event for later on in the, in the story. And this is really good screenwriting. This is kind of something that I really appreciate in films is when they set something up and then there's a payoff 
but the setup doesn't feel like a setup. I think that's where the good screenwriting is. It's where it feels organic in the moment and there's no sort of like, yeah, well, we're going to come back to this. Wink, wink. That sort of vibe. I think that would be amateur storytelling. Mm-hmm. There's so much to learn from Amelie as a screenplay, I think. Yeah. and uh, this Many is, little details. It's the little nuances that kind of paint the whole thing. And this is exactly one of them. You know, we are with Amelie too. Like, okay, we're just there for something else. But it will play into something uh, different at the end. I think we can rush through the next couple of scenes, but it's worth pointing out that we are then introduced to Collignon and Lucien. Yes. Um, Collignon, she's directed to him because he's lived in the building his whole life as well. Mm-hmm. So he might know the name of the the boy who lost this box. Right. But then we see how Collignon, who owns a greengrocer's, is... Um, is so abusive to Lucia. The, the yeah the young man who who works with him who is one of my favorite characters who, exactly and <laughs> again so funny. The, I think the screenplay tries to guide us into yeah we see how Amelie I believe actually in the screenplay it very specifically says either as narration or an action line that Amelie really likes Lucien it's just called out mm-hmm. directly that she. Because she feels a connection and the, mm. the, the resemblance to the comparisons that keep being made to Lady Diana, another friend of the poor. It's, mm. it's that kind of sense with Amelie that she looks for the downtrodden, the right. underdogs, mm-hmm. those who are being oppressed, and then she goes to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, she's, she's kind of the... Uh, vigilante for the the misfits the the people that don't fit into society and he's definitely one of them he's publicly bullied by by Colino. and this is the first time where we see her kind of put into action her something that was set up in her origin story which is that she also punishes as much as she rewards she punishes those that don't behave well she will meddle in their lives and in a in a almost kind of um innocent way you know, she doesn't particularly harm them too much, but just scare them. Like it's almost got this sort of like home alone quality where she, you know, sets mm-hmm. up these yeah, traps exactly. or whatever, <laughs> um, which were really funny. And, you know, it, he deserved that. He was kind of a dick. And and just breezing through some of these early scenes, mm-hmm. uh, she does go to an elderly couple, which is mainly a comedic scene, but she gets the name of the man she's looking for. But she also crosses paths with Nino for the first time when she's oh, going right. through the, one of the train stations. Mm-hmm. And we're introduced to Nino in an interesting way because the narrator calls him out. If if this was just visual, I think we'd end up with a situation like we have in Watchmen where Rorschach appears repeatedly without his mask on in the early scenes of the film and we don't know it's him. Uh, and so it's just a background character. This could just be a background character, but because we have narration, we're immediately told who Nino is, and essentially we're introduced to this concept that they are destined to be together right yeah. from the very beginning, mm-hmm. that they were two lonely children living in different parts of Paris, but then both flashing the light of the sun off a mirror out, mm-hmm. of, their, um, out of their windows. Yeah, absolutely, which is the, where the fairy tale aspect comes in a little bit too you know it's almost like this love at first sight destiny love and another thing that kind of accentuates that point is uh there's like a beat 
visually where we see like an x-ray through her heart and it just warms up and starts beating really, really, mm-hmm. really fast. Yeah, yeah. In so, in the screenplay, it's just described that her heart starts racing yeah. when she's around him. And it's interesting how they translated that visually because mm-hmm. there are many filmmaking techniques you can do to demonstrate that. The most common is just yeah uh, with sound to have a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting to see into a character's chest and see their yeah. heart beating. And it makes sense because at, at this point, they've already established the sort of style of anything can happen. There's no particular rules or anything like that. So anything quirky or eccentric fits into this into this paradigm and 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 that totally hones in the right so this is the boy and this is the girl and they're meant to be together and there's no interaction there's no talking it's just we as an audience get it um which you could argue oh that's maybe a little superficial this is the moment where you i think as an audience decide whether you're going to go with it or you're going to check out because i can imagine very more cynical people being like okay and just checking out then but this is the moment where I feel you're either with it or you're not with it. But it's it's introduced as a peripheral element because mm-hmm. we're still on the quest to find Bretodo. True, right. We, we're not on the quest to find Nino at this mm-hmm. point. And it's actually the fact that that quest doesn't go according to plan mm-hmm. that has us, first of all, seeing her facing adversity, facing more mm-hmm. obstacles in her path, but then we're also seeing how how much it means to her, so we're we're getting a better mm-hmm. sense of her goals. Mm-hmm. And then the one of the hardest things to do with a medium like film is trick the audience into thinking all is lost before it gets saved. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things, it's very interesting how we maybe I'm overstating this, but there is a perception that because America dominates the film industry that they have the screenwriting part of it mastered too. And then you read a screenplay like Amelie and you think there's so much in here that would it would be very unlikely that a Hollywood studio would even let them attempt some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. It's so independent in spirit, that mm-hmm. so much of it. And yet you think, but these are all elements that are added on top of what is a very strong story structure. Mm-hmm. The underlying elements, all of the best practices for writing a story, are completely covered as well. And then it's improved upon. Yeah. What I did kind of feel, it kind of has a Coen Brothers, French Coen Brothers comedy vibe to it, I feel. They would be probably the closest thing, I think, Americans that could probably pull something like this off. I yep. think Amelie is very instructional in showing us how many characters and how much you can do in two hours still. Yeah, because I, I, there's no need to take this another direction and mm-hmm. make it a longer story. I think it is quite neatly fitting into the the two hours that it gets. Yeah, it, it never felt like it uh, overstayed its welcome, or it felt too short. I think it it told the story appropriately well, and I think it just it was written very confidently, and it was filmed very confidently in the fact that. It was a choice, even the bold choices that were just very intentional and it felt very um, focused in its in its intention and in what the story was trying to tell. And even in moments where we're not with Amelie and we're with other characters, we're still being informed of what the story is about in some way. I think we could talk for a long time about the legacy of this, but let's try and get through the story part. 
okay. and then come back to it because one of the things I love about this screenplay is the character of uh, Raymond Dufayel, the glass man. He is portrayed in such a sympathetic manner right from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. And we immediately care for him, I, I feel, because his isolation isn't voluntary. It's involuntary. He's consigned to his, his own apartment where yeah. he even has to protect, he has to cover the television with cushions mm-hmm. in case he could ever hurt himself. And yet we see he's a man of such remarkable talent and insight mm-hmm. that it just seems such a shame that he's, he's kept hidden away. And I do think something you said earlier was very interesting in mentioning how some characters appear to be parts of Amelie's psyche. Dufayel seems to be this hidden mentor within who's kept in this specific room that she can go to and go and Mm -hmm. consult and ask what is the right way to to proceed. In terms of his talent, he's been painting the, uh, the luncheon of the boating party by Renoir over and over again for 20 years this masterpiece of French Impressionism, and repeating it and repeating it and then saying, but there's one piece that I can't get, and it's the girl with the glass of water. And uh, I, I think that leads to the best conversations that they have, Amélie and Dufayel, yeah. talking <laughs> about this girl and then projecting the story of Amélie onto this enigmatic character inside a painting. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I had mentioned earlier, I think their relationship is, in a, in a way, kind of the heart of the story um, because it's someone that she uh, begins to open up to and, and actually through her connection to him, we get to learn more about her and she doesn't have that with any other character. Not even Nino, who she doesn't even really have a proper conversation in the entire film. So he's not our key to her. It's It's this relationship exactly that um informs us of who she is and the thing the reason i think why he as feels a connection to her kind of like what you mentioned which is um that he's a little bit like her he recognizes who she is instantly you know he's been observing her he knows in a in a certain way that's him because he's also an introvert he's also kind of hiding from the world and so that's why he's able to kind of bring all that stuff up to her and I think the the sort of beauty of his character is that he ends up really genuinely caring for her. It's it's interesting in that very first scene, the first time they mention the girl in the painting. Mm-hmm. He mentions who the girl is, and Amelie says, "Well, she feels different." And he asks her why, and Amelie replies, "I don't know." Mm. And he says, "It's because she can't establish relationships with others." which again is a comment on her. And we see how these, these lines of dialogue resonate. We can, Audrey Toto's um, performance is so incredible uh, mm-hmm. in this film because she reveals so much with facial expression. Mm-hmm. And even revealing when, when a line of dialogue cuts into Amelie and, mm-hmm. and there's just this little... Um, there's just this little giveaway mm-hmm. as if someone was trying to lie and then they can maintain their composure the whole time that when that one lie comes up it's revealed through something 
in in the expression. I feel that that is mm. is one of those moments, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but- I can completely see how she got cast for this with one audition and. Shonae mm. just basically said, "Yes, this is my Amelie. I I need this actress." Yeah, no. I mean, her silences speak volumes. Like her little eye movement, she doesn't say too much, and that's the beauty of her performance. You're right, and it's never overly done. Her expressions, it's always very subtle, but not subtle enough that you don't pick up on it. And it also helps that they do a lot of close-ups on her face. It's it's interesting. I've heard this. Um. I've heard this phrase before, but I've seen the film Amelie is being described as being filmed with the male gaze, but I, I'm i not certain that it is that kind of film. I think it's a film that gets in close to its protagonist, who is female. You mean like as in sort of like objectifying her? Is yeah, that what you mean yeah, by I male believe, gaze? Or? I believe that's what the, what the male gaze means is okay. essentially that you you don't get inside her head and that you... You see her from a distance, and you're seeing her from the male point of view. But I don't believe that's the case with this film. She no. does talk to us directly. I think she does share what's going on, that the narrator shares what's going on for us for other details. But actually, it's it's key to the medium of cinema that we're observing from the outside. No, um, I totally, I totally understand what you're saying. I, I think I agree with that because were she a, a very bubbly and very personable character and then then okay i can maybe see why why do we have a male narrator or or something like that but that's the whole point you know from the very get-go this is someone that's painfully shy and introverted and doesn't let anybody in that includes us the audience so Mm -hmm. someone has to do it for her i think it just paints that picture that portrait a little bit better i think um i don't particularly see that yeah i mean i just love discussing those kind of uh easy film criticisms that that get bandied around because I, I genuinely mm. believe that this is much more specific to Audrey Toto's performance and our willingness as an audience to get to know her as a character. Yeah, totally. I, I, I definitely don't, don't, don't agree with that statement. That sounds a little lazy. Just continuing on with the story, one of the best scenes comes up straight after this, which is um, Brett Odeau, uh receiving the box. Mm-hmm. After she is able to track him down by talking to the glass man, right, uh, Dufayen. What is so phenomenal about this scene is that we get to see someone change their entire outlook on life, mm-hmm. and we follow it. We, we've only just met this person, mm-hmm. and we get a sense. All we're told in traditional Amelie style is one of his likes, which is that he loves cooking roast chicken. Mm-hmm. So we get a sense. Again, what kind of character is this? Someone who loves those simple pleasures, the taste of food. Mm-hmm. Again, very tied into the French uh, identity of the film as well, the, the love of cuisine. Right. And then his life completely changes because of the act of this young woman who just decides to do something kind. Yeah. Almost as a test for herself. She, I don't think she even had fully appreciated what her action might do because she goes to her father and he's not really listening to her he's got this new gnome well that he's right. he's got out of his his shed and now he's painting it and he's not really listening to his daughter but she did ask him how would you feel if i if someone found something from your childhood and he said oh no i've had this gnome for 
for a while, but not since my childhood. Mm-hmm. And she's frustrated because no one's listening to her. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think she really appreciated how much Bretado was going to be affected mm-hmm. by this phone call, by finding all of his childhood memories in this box that he hid away as a child. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that was a very moving scene. I think it was all in theory. And once it was there, it kind of hit her that it was a success. You know, it was like, this is a trial run and then it works. And now she can fully embrace this journey, this mission, because she kind of treats it as such, you know, she's a vigilante and she's going to do good for the world. I think when I saw it when I was younger, I don't think maybe that scene kind of hit the way it hit me at this age. Not that I'm that age, but I'm old enough to imagine what it would feel like to to come across something that I played with when I was four, but haven't seen since then, like just that flood of memories coming back. And it, it's almost like a, a reflection of, of, of your own life. And I think that was a very powerful, it was very smart for the, for the writers to use that as the first good deed. You know, I can imagine them thinking, okay, what would be a good deed? You know, what would be very profound and emotionally profound? And I think nostalgia and, for an older person to be taken back to their childhood, to that sense of innocence is moving for anybody. So it was very universal. I think that was a very good choice by the writers to pick that. Um, it's, it's used to great effect in Coco, mm-hmm. actually, now that I think about it, that a very similar usage of nostalgia. Right, yeah. I only wrote down a couple of quotes for this particular screenplay, but another one that I wrote down comes from this scene as she's, as she's leaving. Mm -hmm. The cafe, it says, her strange feeling of being in total harmony with herself. Everything is perfect in this moment. Mm. So it's, it's with that, it's with that, that she decides to bring joy to others. And then she, she uh, sees a blind man who lives in her neighborhood. And instead of just helping, yeah. yeah, instead of just helping him cross the street, she takes him on this whirlwind tour of the street describing everything she can see everything that's going on around him and brings the world to life for him and then just leaves him at his station and says okay here you are and have a great day and she's getting out of the situation so no one can feel indebted to her that no one can can give her anything in return she's hiding away she's also protecting herself by doing Mm -hmm. it but it's all these selfless acts that makes us really love Amelie as a character because mm-hmm. she's going around doing all these great things for other people and not asking for anything in return mm-hmm. yeah and, and that that makes her feel like she has a purpose now it, it all of a sudden it gives her our character something intentional for them to do something that motivates them and but you're right she in a way she's um kind of getting high off of being you know, very giving to these people because they're very profound things. I can, like I said, I can only imagine, you know, what the writers were thinking. I would be interested to see what their list was of like different scenarios of doing something, a good deed for someone. There's a very interesting technique where Mm -hmm. she then is watching television and she's transported into her imagination, imagining her own funeral going out on the television Mm -hmm. and imagining where she's going to end up by living her life this way. And again, there's there's all these magical elements that reveal mm-hmm. what's going on in her mind. There's points in the screenplay where the animal-shaped objects in her room 
talk. I love um, that. that. That's one of the magic moments. Mm-hmm. This is another one, is, is that when she watches television, it's, it's like the television is talking about her. She mm-hmm. somehow ends up on the screen that she is watching from the outside. It's used a couple times where even if she's not in it, the characters in the television are talking about her. Was this before or after she finds the, the portfolio? This is all before. And so we it's kind of take backwards. a long time to get yeah. through the, the screenplay. Yes. So. Um, so we're going to rush through probably mm-hmm. a lot of the points that are coming up. But we have introduced most of the characters now. It's a very long read. I will say that. Not just because it's in French. I do feel it like it was really a long, long read. And I think it was all because of the, the action and the descriptions. There's not that much dialogue. Uh, a couple of the next... Should we just call them plot points? But she decides to steal the gnome from her father. Yes. Which is important. Uh, but she also misses the train as a result of that, which leads to her sleeping at the station. And then that gives her a second chance of seeing Nino, which is when mm. he chases after the man who he keeps seeing. Yes. Again, we, we have this moment where she is... I think this is a scene, actually, where it describes how she approaches him, contemplates him. She's intrigued but baffled at seeing this man underneath the uh, photo booth. Mm -hmm. And her heart races, and she's just there motionless and hypnotized. Mm -hmm. Then he runs past her. We think for a moment he's looking at her. Oh, yeah. And then he runs past her on this chase. Mm -hmm. And then she chases after him, which... In normal life, you'd be, that's weird. <laughs> but, you know. But, I mean, yeah, he <laughs> he gets stopped by uh, a party of nuns. I think, you know, there's lots of magical elements there oh, yeah. <laughs> where you're you're not just questioning the reality yeah. of of the, the characters. You're yeah. questioning reality as a whole a lot of the way through Amelie, I think. Yeah, and so um, that portfolio kind of makes her fall in love with him a little more or the idea of him. She becomes intrigued, definitely. Yeah, because it's like, well, who would do this? This one, the story kind of shifts. She's still doing good deeds, but the story becomes now a little bit more about her own personal journey as opposed to her doing stuff for others, which she's still doing. But there's all these different experiments. We've seen one go off successfully, which mm-hmm. is the Bretodo one. Right. Uh, but then there's the experiment with taking her father's gnome away. There's the experiment of getting joseph and georgette together exactly that comes up which right is, after this as which, well yeah just side note that's kind of um that was very intriguing like the whole concept of like to get to people or to play cupid that's what suzanne actually she says yes what she's learned of love right. in all the t- because they're all the the characters in the cafe are challenging each other and she says i've been here 30 years and if i've learned anything it's that if you tell two people they like each other, they'll end up together, which I just think is a very brilliant bit of everyday mentality. Just, yeah. the, just the cafe mentality. The, but the, I mean, I think there's just observational. That's that's the idea. Right. It's, it's observational humor. Right. And I think it's there's a truth to it though, and which was very intriguing when I when I was like thinking about it. I was like, well, I, I almost want to try that and it's it's <laughs> see if it works. It's funnily running contrary to the traditional romantic story and the sense of destiny that we're getting with Amelie and Nino is to Mm. have Suzanne's approach to it, which is 
Well, if you just tell two people they like each other, yes, they are intrigued. Yes, they may end up together. But is it the right way to make a match? <laughs> As we later find out, it is not. Well, at least in this case. Not with Joseph, probably. Well, anyone. not with anybody, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Um, so, yeah, so she's doing all these uh, experiments and still working on that. But now we have a new plot point, which is this portfolio and the intrigue of this man and her trying to uh, find him. One thing that's really wonderful mm -hmm. is that you could have the narrator tell us. This is something that you can almost see the the gears turning in uh, Jeanne's head here. Mm -hmm. You could have her looking through this portfolio and have the narrator tell us about it. And instead what we get, we mm. do get a tiny bit of, of that sense. But what we really get is her going to Dufayel to talk about the portfolio. And then they can speculate on it together. Mm -hmm. And that allows their imaginations to run wild mm -hmm. when they notice that this man reappears on, on different pages. They start to get caught up in the magic of the hunt, of the, the chase, the thrill of, mm -hmm. of this adventure that they're going. And he's on this adventure too because mm. she's gone up to his room and brought him into the outside world. And he's even though he can't leave, he's finally a part of something that's going on outside. And I just think that adds to their bonding. It adds to the tenderness of that scene. It's She's sharing the secret that she doesn't share with anyone else, and she chooses him to share it with. And you brought up a good point. I feel you know the, the narrator, like you said, the narrator could have jumped in and explained everything for us, but he didn't. So there's... A good reminder for, for us when we're writing is that we have the power to withhold information at any point and the withholding of information or the giving of information is shaping the storytelling, is shaping the emotional journey. So that's something that's that's a good thing to be mindful about when you're writing is, you know, how much does the audience know at this point and is that working for or against the story? How would it be more interesting? Would it be more interesting if the audience knew or they didn't know? Um, I think that's something that I personally forget sometimes when I'm writing. I'm just writing story, but then I'm, I, you know, it's good to remember, right, we're actually taking an audience on a journey and we get to decide what that uh, emotional journey is. We get caught up in, in that mystery with them and that becomes a driving force in the plot. During that scene as well, we return to the metaphor of the girl in the painting. Mm -hmm. And in in this particular case... Amelie says she's dreaming of someone special, to which mm. Dufayel, I believe he asks her after that, who, is it someone in the painting? And she says, no, he's not there, to which Dufayel says that um, she prefers to imagine that this girl prefers to be dreaming of someone far away that, rather than someone else in the painting. He, he's kind of holding up a mirror to her at this point, saying, look mm. at all these people around you. And you're not connecting. You're keeping yourself hidden away. Mm -hmm. And yet you're lost in your imagination thinking about this guy who you don't know anything about. Mm -hmm. And I like that he, he also introduces that challenge without, without it being mean-spirited. Mm -hmm. He's just introducing it as a, a bit of a reality check for her, I think. If you're serious about this, you should be serious about it. A reality check, which is the last thing that she likes, the least that she <laughs> yeah. likes. It's literally there. there. The most imaginative girl in, in France, yeah. She... <laughs> it's the last thing she needs, last thing she wants. Again, guiding her character 
I think the if we're talking about like sort of story beats or if we go specifically to plot points, this leads to this search, this quest for getting to Nino becomes more about now she has to step out of her comfort zone. So this is the catalyst for her own inner transformative journey. So what started off as a sort of doing something for other people and kind of a thin plot of her doing this, all of a sudden we're about a, a, another level deeper in which now she has to change something within herself to get this part done. And she goes about it different ways, but always from a distance. And we see the struggle of her owning up to what she needs to do by creating another strategy, another imaginative, another creative way to to get to him. Again, as an excuse, as a a way of protecting herself. I think that's when the story really starts getting a, a little deeper with her character. And, and it's almost like, um, you know, kind of like a kaleidoscope. The movie starts with all these characters and she's at the center and she's trying to do good. And there's like this big palette of like, different wonderful colorful characters and locations and then slowly it starts kind of like you know peeling off the layers and it starts kind of like honing in on on her and kind of what her own inner journey is going to be at and and i really like that about the film the fact that it wasn't just right off the bat she's going on this like inner journey it it, it kind of everything kind of organically takes her there and i think that's when it's good plot is when it's not driven by this needs to happen in order for her to meet Nino in order to do this this and that it's driven by character it's driven by her need to connect to people without connecting to people which leads to her having to connect to people I think we're gonna have to skip over a lot of the side stories just otherwise we won't get through the rest of the film yes uh, but there she does mess with Colin Yon brilliant Multiple times these are brilliant scenes <laughs> yeah, for the comedic so value Mm-hmm. And it teaches a lesson to a character who needs to learn a lesson. I think it pays off. I think it yeah. shows the power of of that approach as well as just trying to do good. I think my favorite part is when he tries calling his mom and it and it <laughs> yep. calls the the psych ward. <laughs> yeah, that's the that line was definitely added in a punch up of yeah. How can we make this even funnier? <laughs> I think that was hilarious. I think that underscores the whole idea is essentially. Especially because a lot of the comments he makes about Luciano, about his his mind, about mm-hmm. him being slow, about him being mm-hmm. unintelligent, yeah. I I like that she's not just trying to mess with him oh, by I've... taking things away from him. She's she's trying to make him see what it's like to have his mind questioned, putting him in literally in someone else's shoes for That's... a day. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. That's true. She does see her father again, who's still not listening to her. So she mm-hmm. she says in front of him, "Well, I had two heart attacks, and I'm I'm doing crack now." And he's he's just not, nodding, and right. his mind's elsewhere. But what I love is that his mind is now elsewhere because his beloved gnome is sending him photographs <laughs> <Yeah>. from. <laughs> I love this thing where he's like, "I I don't get it." He doesn't I, get I just it. Don't get it. Like, it was... <laughs> which is a, something That's that so Georgette actually says as well when when Amelie is trying to introduce her to the concept oh, yeah. of when she Joseph sits her down. liking her. She sits her down mm-hmm. and Georgette is, Georgette is saying the same thing. I don't get it. I don't. What am I meant to be looking at? And so many characters, it's right under their very nose all the way through. Mm-hmm. Amelie is trying to guide them there. Right. Amelie doesn't have a guide for herself. So Dufayel is the man who will mm-hmm. guide her towards what is right for her. Yes. 
But I think ultimately, by this point, it's very interesting that within the format we read, we're talking about 60, 70 pages before the chase for Nino is actually on, before mm-hmm. before they're playing these games of sending messages back and forth. Mm-hmm. The romantic gesture scene, um, I mean, she does check him out first, right? She She sees his advert. Mm-hmm. He wants his portfolio returned. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she calls the the phone line. She gets a very strange message because he works at a, a sex shop and they also have table dancers there. So the the person answering the phone thinks she's calling to apply to be a table dancer. Right. And so she's obviously quite disturbed and scared by this Um not necessarily just because she's scared of Nino, but I mean, she's starting to wonder who he is, but he seems to be a very decent guy who just ended up working in the adult industry, let's mm-hmm. say. But she does find out who he is. She she kind of scopes out where he works, talks to someone that knows him, and then goes to see him at the amusement park mm-hmm. where he works and... They play this very beautiful game of cat and mouse with each other. Mm-hmm. Her big gesture moment, I think, is is one of the showpieces of of the film. It's it's a great great scene where it's this one where she gets him to the telephone and yeah, goes she, up on that. Yeah, hike. she leads him to the Sacre Coeur, I believe, mm-hmm. in Paris, mm-hmm. and he obviously wants his portfolio back. Mm-hmm. Um, so he goes. So she uses arrows. To kind of like breadcrumb him to the destination, and you know he's he's very intrigued by this, and, and the whole thing about about his character is that he's actually not annoyed or irritated by any of this. He's actually quite enjoying the hunt as well. So there you also see sort of like the similarities between the two of them. Um, so she leads him all the way to the very top, only to find her all the way at the bottom. So then he chases all the way down. And um, gets him to the telephone where she just reveals a little bit more about her. Once he gets down the stairs, he gets his portfolio. And then she calls. So she gives him what he wants. But within that, she gives him a clue as to who she is. So it's almost like kind of like tagger it. You know, Mm -hmm. I was chasing you. Now it's your turn. Now you get to chase me. And here are your clues to to finding who I am. And it's done in in a way that keeps her very safe. So it always remains a game. And it's never been Nino going after her without her interest. She's Mm -hmm. clearly established that she does want to get to know him. So Mm -hmm. that gives him this permission to create his own games, to create his own big Mm -hmm. gesture in response, which I think is a really fun dynamic that they play around with until they finally do actually get together at the end. Right. She pretty much says, like, would you like to meet me in pictures in four different pictures in the in the portfolio, right? Yeah. And she tells him on the phone to turn to a certain page. Right. And then she he yeah. finds those clues. He he actually just puts up posters for her in the train station that say U Equant. Where Oh, and that's when. right. And then she's kind of like And she's horrified by this yes. because they're pictures of her, her right. belly with the question mark on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't actually reveal her face, but she's still horrified that her little game is now public. Yes. And so she does give him a time in 
and place, which is where she works. I, I can completely relate to this moment, and I think a lot of people can, where finally what you want is happening and it's there, and she does sabotage it. She still can't quite make that leap. She can't dive into it. I mean, she's so close. He's there. And, and, and they can yeah, talk. Yeah, she backs out. And she backs out. She she totally does a 180. So he shows up at the cafe where, you know, she had intended him to be. And even right before then, I think, you know, he's not showing up. And she's creating all these scenarios in her head very creatively and imaginatively of why he wouldn't be there. And I think he ends yeah, up in... Actually, in the screenplay, I believe it lists three scenarios that could have happened to him. Mm-hmm. And in the film, it's two. And the one they take out is actually the sensible one. So what we're left with <laughs> is is a really two very catastrophic yes. scenarios for her. It's actually a page long, that monologue. Mm. It's, it's what's going through her mind, this whole story about him ending up in Russia and then Tajikistan. And, <laughs> you know, it's just, but it's true. It's what happens to a lot of people's imagination. They start catastrophizing. They start oh, yeah. thinking the worst thing possible is mm-hmm. going to happen. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to convey that in a screenplay with usually mm-hmm. a character would seem a little bit unrealistic, but it's because she's not saying it out loud. We're being told what she thinks. Mm-hmm. Again, it's a personal private thought. Of course, it sounds crazy when you say it out loud and it's only been 15 minutes or something that he's late. But but everyone has those thoughts, like you said, yeah. and everyone jumps to the worst conclusion. So we see how devastated she is that he didn't get to be here, but then he does show up. And that just puts her in the spotlight and it's showtime and she just can't do it. You know, he even asks her point blank, is this you? And she says no. Mm-hmm. And so she lets him leave and uh, she turns into a puddle of water. Literally, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which I'd love. I mean, talk about like just visually articulating what the emotional moment is in that, even if it's completely ridiculous, but that is kind of what one feels like when you're crushed you just feel and usually this is reserved for cartoons but to do it in the magical realist world of Mm -hmm. the in which amelie lives i think works brilliantly as well yeah no it totally fits the tone and the 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 style that the film has and that's what makes it so charming it's a it's a very charming film i think um after this it kind of it's devastating to her i think she realizes i think in this moment how bad she can't connect with people, how she can't make that leap. I think it just becomes very obvious to her that she can't do it. This is a situation of her creation, and mm-hmm. she still has the control over it, and it is, it's ultimately just her being afraid to take the risk. Right. I think this is where this ties back into her relationship with Dufayel, and he is the one mm-hmm. who's able to lift her out of this rut. Yeah. Um, and it's important. There's a small bit that's very important that happens before this, which is that she started making videotapes for him. Mm-hmm. She's bringing all these exciting images from the outside world. He's only ever had his TV tuned to uh, a clock across the street. He's got his video camera pointing at the clock, and mm-hmm. he just uses the TV to see the clock. He's completely closed off in his world. She sends him these video recordings of TV one which is a horse that joins the Tour de France. And it's a beautiful image. And the, the videos are described in the screenplay as being 
bizarre and poetic. And I mm. think that pretty much sums up what we get. They they describe different images in in the written form because I guess they found some very interesting visuals to include in the actual film in the right. end. But they do have that effect on you. They have this, oh, we're pausing from the story for a second, mm. but we're seeing something that is just interesting, again, tying into that idea of all these beautiful things that are available in day-to-day -day life, all these tiny moments that if you don't appreciate them, you're missing out. Mm -hmm. And Dufayel is very touched by this. Mm -hmm. And it's him who tells her that it's finally time through, again, the metaphor of the girl in the painting, it's time to take a risk. If she doesn't, then he says, no more planning, no more stratagems, as they call them. This is time. Mm -hmm. And he's there for her again in the critical moment when Nino actually knows where she lives and goes up to see her. He calls her and says, go and check uh, the bedroom. Mm -hmm. And he's left a video for her in the bedroom as well, mm -hmm. which says, if you don't act now, you're going to miss out on everything if you don't take this risk. I know you're afraid of being hurt, but you have to be prepared to suffer in life. And saying that she can take it. Yeah. That, that, you know, he knows that she can take he it. He says, you're not made of glass like me. You can survive the pain, but I'm worried that if you don't do it right now, your heart is going to become dry and brittle and then it will be able to break. Mm. And I think that's such such a beautiful comment. And those words mean so much more coming from that character as yeah. opposed to anyone else around her. The fact that it's Dufayel, someone who has lived a life in isolation, that we, we appreciate what she could be missing out on. And using her own strategies against her, he's using her method to get to her so in a way, it's almost like he's speaking her language. And I think that was brilliant too. And in a way, he kind of represents, I feel, her loneliness. I think he's kind of embodies that part of her psyche. It's her loneliness talking to her, that aspect, because he is isolated. So in a way, I think he personifies that, that side of her. And I think that's when she really does realize that hits home for her. I think that's when she's like, okay, yes, I'm done. I'm, I'm ready. I'm good to go. And that's the shift because i did have a particular uh, moment where i did ask myself did she earn this like her as a character did she earn this ending for herself and the answer to that is to me it's yes because you know we see how painful it is for her to actually connect and even when she has in front of her what she wants she still is unwilling or unable, I should say. She's unable to do it. So clearly there's this, again, the movie never gets too heavy, but there is this sort of deep trauma that prevents her from going for what she wants. And I think uh, it, it took sort of a wake-up call because, you know, she's thinking, how many times is he going to leave and come back? I mean, already this is probably like the third time where, the, you know, she kind of chickens out and, and she goes for it she she opens the door and she's ready to to go after him and accept that he's there and uh she for once makes the first move it's a very beautiful ending because we we get conclusions for all of the other characters and there is so much to to talk about because mm -hmm. there are so many characters 
some of the ones that stand out to me because they all accompany this romantic ending. Mm. It's a romantic ending for Amelie, but there's also this sense that other things that she's set up throughout the course of this film pay off as well. So she gets something more than just love and acceptance. She gets something in terms of that wider community around her as well, just making the world a better place mm. through her existence, giving that meaning to her life. The ones that really stand out to me are that she, she writes some of Hippolyto's words as graffiti in the street. Mm. So it's, it's being published and it's mm. out there for people to appreciate yeah. Um, the fact that her father, who's been saying all this time that, oh, well, we never traveled because of your heart. And then when your mother died, he's made all these excuses. And then by the end, he's traveling. He's seen the message. He's finally understood. This gnome has gone all the way around the world. Why can't you go out and see something? Mm -hmm. um, there's the concierge. The letters that she wrote. Yeah, That having, one was particularly very beautiful. Yeah, and having an, because it doesn't matter what really happened, mm -hmm. in a sense, it's giving this old lady peace in, yeah. and an ability to, to move on from, yeah. from something that was causing her pain even 40 years later. Yeah, I did have that thought when I first saw it. Um, Is it ethical, you mean? Yeah, like, well, she's totally lying to her. That obviously didn't happen. I don't know if that's the right thing to do, but you're right. At that point, it doesn't matter. It made the matter. pain go away. It's about um, there's something. Sometimes people need more than the truth. Mm -hmm. They need to have their faith rewarded. That's from The Dark Knight. Um, <laughs> I can't believe that just came out like that. But anyways, it's true though. And in, in certain situations, that is helping her move on. Another reason why I think she did earn this ending is because of this, because of the beautiful moments or the beautiful sort of gifts that she gave to others. You know, and then now she finally opened herself to receive one and Dufayel does the same he mm -hmm. he is transformed because he's been watching her this whole time living his external life by being constrained to where he is physically mm -hmm. is kind of lived through her and we see that at the end he's painting something new mm -hmm. he's painting a new style and he's He's also learned from Lucien, who he's spent time with during the film painting together. But right. he's, he's learned that style from him. He's opened his world up to someone else. Yeah, so his own journey kind of does come to a sort of close and, you know, rebirth as well. So the, the writers very clearly did not leave too many open ends. Actually, one of the best endings for any character is Bretodot. We do see him again right at the very end with his grandson. So we know that mm. that moment that changed his life genuinely did work. And then he reconnected with the family that he was estranged from. Mm -hmm. So we get, we get all these beautiful endings for, mm -hmm. and they're all tied in with this moment where Amelie and Nino come together finally. Mm -hmm. So what more could you want than that? I suppose. Yeah. It's a, it's a very fairy tale ending and it's a very feel good and charming and charismatic. I, I love that whole last sequence, the music, the, the music, the cinematography, um, them riding their bike around the city. I thought it was like a perfect ending to it. I, I mean, it's a, a great feel good ending and movie and the, the scenes between Defile and uh, Lucian were really funny to me in particular the last time they were painting together and um, he's clearly annoyed with Lucian because he's 
talking while he's trying to paint and then finally he explodes when he mentions lady d <laughs> i just thought that was like a really funny scene i think um implying these relationships too i think with very little scenes because if you were to like kind of get each character's individual scenes and kind of add them up it wouldn't be a lot of screen time i don't think but because they're sprinkled throughout the entire film and then you go in and out like it kind of gives you the illusion of the passing of time and it kind of makes you buy into that they're, you're actually uh, witnessing the fleshing of these characters a lot more than they actually are. So I think that's also a good technique that they used. So we did say that we'd talk about character, dialogue, plot, story themes. We did cover a lot of that throughout this conversation, but we can just give some summary things that we learned, things that we think the screenplay did well. Let's start with character. Character. So I feel the film did a great job in terms of developing our main protagonist. I think Amelie is a very well thought out character, even though she does represent an archetype. It's the exploration of that archetype through her relationships with the people around her and in the pursuit of what she wants, I think reveals a lot about her character and kind of what she finds pleasure in and which that is sort of like the main driving force in the beginning which is to do all these good deeds really reveals a lot about her so i think they did a great job in terms of character in terms of supporting character i think it's great if you're looking at how um, memorable and how colorful they were but in terms of deepening those characters i don't think there was much in terms of developing those particular characters there was some arcs and all of that with the exception of um a few but i don't think that was the point i think this was centered around her and even though it could i wouldn't even call it an ensemble piece you know this is clearly her show and these people are just there to sort of add to her story so i don't think they needed to really flesh out 100 percent a lot of these characters yeah i think i agree and with everything you said in terms of Amelie as a character, I think the biggest takeaway was the benefit that knowing about a character's childhood can influence our understanding of them as an adult. I think that worked very well in favor of Amelie uh, mm -hmm. as a whole, just mm -hmm. to, to lay that groundwork to give us access to different parts of the character's mind, something that we very rarely get to see because film is tends to be just an observational medium mm -hmm. and actually getting all of that access through narration through breaking the fourth wall i think it it just worked perfectly for the supporting characters i agreed there were i think there were maybe a few too many characters overall that it could have just been whittled down a tiny bit uh, a few key plot elements could have been combined between some characters but ultimately i think as a result of there being so many, we got the very iconic Dufayel and Lucian. And I think just those two in general are so memorable mm -hmm. that it's, especially Dufayel, I think he is almost the second character in the entire film, mm -hmm. if there is going to be one. Well, he's kind of the, the wizard in the hero's yeah. journey, you know. Yeah, definitely. And uh, while the father is quite absent and not playing the role of that father. Right. Um, and That's actually true. kind of needs to be a dependent of Amelie's because mm. of the struggle he's going through uh, being a widower. But what I do think is that ultimately this 
the screenplay was able to portray its characters with so much sympathy that even if we didn't get enough in terms of story or maybe there were a few too many characters, I think everyone was treated with so much sympathy that it will always resonate with the reader, always draw out those emotions. And when it's on screen, yeah, you know how quickly it can hit you when mm. there's a flesh and blood actor portraying a character that is treated with so much sympathy immediately mm. even mm. as we see with Brett Todo, we are hit immediately with emotion in just one scene so mm-hmm. you don't necessarily need to give characters these huge story arcs and they were never boring which is key um in terms of dialogue i very fascinating to read something knowing that uh, that one screenwriter is dedicated entirely to dialogue. Jeanne mm-hmm. has said in interviews he literally writes down characters' names in it and just writes blah, blah, blah and sends it to wow. Laura. And then you read the depth. Some of this dialogue feels like it's adapted from a novel, and yet there is no novel it's adapted for. This is original mm-hmm. dialogue and original narration. Mm-hmm. I do believe the narrator should be counted as dialogue, which is a you know it's a it's a odd concept to get your head around because in a book narration is not dialogue, mm-hmm. but I think in in the screenplay format it is. So that's very interesting. I think I think you could probably spend the length of this show again just analyzing how this was done, but ultimately it's one of the most interesting exercises in dialogue I've seen. And again, tying back into the idea of how characters reveal more about themselves depending on who they're talking to. Uh, scenes like Amelie with Defaya. Talking about the painting. Yes, uh, exactly. It's, yeah. it's just about the interactions between certain mm-hmm. characters, how much is brought into the film through those interactions. This is definitely a masterclass in dialogue, mm-hmm. although it has some weak points, I think, in some of the cafe scenes. Although I feel that might be also because we don't necessarily recognize those stereotypical conversations that one might expect in a cafe. And so I found those maybe really we're entertaining. I don't know. I, I had the, uh, the sort of opposite effect on that where I found those those seems to be very colorful. And, and um, I don't know. I was very, I was even though I knew these weren't the main characters, I was very entertained by their 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 dialogue. I think there's a universal sort of chit chat chatter because i mean it's a cafe in france but i think it could also represent a coffee house here bar uh hearing people's different conversations i think it it did a good job in painting sort of the the regulars the people that work there and kind of creating this sort of dynamic um again these weren't the main characters obviously but one of the things about the dialogue too is that it's very it always has a sense of uh, urgency you know, you have characters that want something in that scene and it comes across through the dialogue in a very interesting and funny way. You have, like, for example, the scene where you have um, Amelie talking to the vendor of magazines and she's like, oh, is that the, is that Joseph after Gina again? She's trying to gossip. She's trying to get to the truth. And through that, she she makes some funny statements like saying that, you know, it's sad that Lady Diana died because, you know, she was she's finally the first pretty princess and you know amelie says something like well if she would have been ugly would you have would that not have been sad and she's like well no just look at mother Teresa." (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, anyways, it's it's a it's a very colorful um, cut characters, and the dialogue fit. I think the characters very well. So I re- yeah, I agree with you. I think it is a masterclass in in dialogue. I really liked it. So th- the next two things um, is plot and story, and just to kind of differentiate it, plot. You know, it's just kind of what actions were taken by the characters, how to get from one scene to the other, one beat to the other beat. Altogether, that creates a sort of, you know, the story. I think the plot was, I think they did a good job at making a seemingly almost non-existent plot with no real sense of urgency, make it feel like it, it everything depends on it. I mean, you have, just imagine someone telling you like, oh, it's a movie about a girl who decides that she's going to, do good deeds for people behind their back uh without saying it's her i mean it doesn't sound like the most intriguing story it doesn't sound like there's much stakes in it but good plot i think moves forward through the actions of the character that revealed who the character is and i think the film did a great job at that at using amelie to move the story forward as opposed to this happened to her and then that happened to her i think lazy story writing is when you use big events or you use events to motivate a character to go forward in the story. I think a good plot is the character, the character's choices creating the plot because then it's a marriage of character and, and, and story. And it's not so much, I think it takes an audience out of it or when you see, oh yeah, that had to happen in order for that to happen. And you start seeing sort of the mechanics behind it. And I think, that doesn't happen when you have really well-rounded characters like Amelie and you get to know them through what their actions are. Yeah, I, I feel that this this whole screenplay is full of so many, um, so many things happen. Mm-hmm. It could be hard to understand exactly where the story lies because the narration will take you off in one direction and then some interactions between characters will take you off into another direction. It seems to be jumping around, mm-hmm. but it's very clearly structured underneath all of that, right? And it's very carefully done, so it's never taking you away from the action for too long. Mm-hmm. So it's quick cuts away, and then back to the story. Quick cut away, right? And it is a difficult balance. You know, the biggest criticism about writing, when there's a new author, especially, is your story isn't about anything. You're giving us a lot of nice scenes you're giving us a lot of nice writing the words are great (laughs) but there's nothing happening and there's no reason to care about these characters and they're not making the decisions those are all the very basic things that are very hard to master at the beginning Mm -hmm. and actually they've demonstrated uh janot and laurent have demonstrated very clearly they know what they're doing so i feel like when the plot deviates it's intended to give us something extra as opposed to meandering because they don't know what they're doing. There's right. a very important distinction. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I think the actual, the cat and mouse game played between Nino and Amelie is one of the most memorable love stories of all time. So it's done so well mm-hmm. by having that special dynamic where you have these two lovers who don't really want to reveal who they are until they're certain that they're ready to open up to someone else it's yeah it's such a powerful concept mm-hmm. it's it's almost like they're telepathically communicating through their own ways of, of doing so so i yeah i agree with you 
that is a very memorable love story for sure. I think so. Just story in general, I think it's a it's a wonderful story because you know it it's about this girl who is afraid to break out of her shell, and she's willing to do all these great things for other people, but she can't quite open up herself to receive that what she's giving. And it is a journey about her learning to open up and learning to connect with with people. And I think that to me is kind of summarizes sort of what the story is. Obviously, there's also a love story in there. Um, and it's about her finding true love by opening up, by connecting. And I, I love the story. I think story-wise, I think it's a great story. It's 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 a very fundamental story. I think it's a story that you could, you know, sit around a campfire. You wouldn't need the visuals or the dialogue and you can just tell this story. A good story is just the basic, the journey of a character. And I think that this story does that and very well crafted. In terms of her being able to take a risk, a great job is done at the start. Very clearly it's established how much this is going to cost mentally to come to terms with the need to take risk, Mm -hmm. with the need to fully embrace life. There's there's some security in living in a world of potential, in living in a world of imagination, but that ultimately she will have to decide at some point whether she wants to go on living it that way forever. Mm. There will be costs to doing that as well. And having yeah. Dufael be her mentor throughout the journey just allows us to really engage with the story. I think this starts to tie into theme as well. Mm -hmm. Themes of solitude, themes of sympathy, kindness, opening up, trusting, taking risk. All of these things tie into the themes because they come from the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you said it perfectly. I think those were exactly the themes. And um, I think, you know, since it is a, a love story as well, the theme of it is love and the concept of love of which is to to give but it's also to receive. I think it's um, in order to find true love, there's got to be a marriage of both. And we saw that she is a giver. She, she, she likes to give. And she discovers that about herself very profoundly in the film when she starts embarking on this journey to do all these like really good deeds. And at the end, I think she learns the, the, the receiving end of that, which is being brave enough to feel that almost self-love that maybe she wasn't quite feeling of opening up and allowing herself to feel like she deserves that and that she's entitled to it and that she she's worthy of it, which is kind of like the climax of the film and you get your your happy ending. And then you get this big th- overarching theme of destiny, which I think yeah. is established right from the first page with the title. with all these magical oh, right. well all these magical <laughs> moments that are happening at the moment of her birth. Yeah. That there is this carefully constructed destiny mm. throughout her life, but it yeah. also will require her engagement with it. It's not a destiny that will come to the passive. Mm. Destiny is only also as a result of action, and right. it's that is the theme that I think they they explore, and with such powerful tools to use magical realism to use these visual elements such as turning into a puddle of water or seeing her heart beating mm-hmm. to to break the fourth wall to have narration mm-hmm. to have insights into characters minds to be able to 
flip from place to place across the city, all of these different techniques that are used throughout always come back to that central theme of destiny, I think. Mm -hmm. And just that there is something good to look forward to for all of these characters. Mm -hmm. And that was where that original name of the cafe, the everything's going to get better cafe, I -hmm. think ties into that, that central to this story, there was going to be this, this place, this hub, where all these characters, or mm. most of the characters, tend to end up in this place at one point or another because Amelie is there, because things are going to get better, because kindness and sympathy mm. are, are in the world. Yeah, kind of said it better myself. So that's it from us for another week. Yep. And yeah, I look forward to seeing you when I'm back from Japan. And I know, I'm so we jealous. We'll tackle another great screenplay. Yes. I'm really excited to read that one, actually. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. If you want to support the show, the best thing you can do is recommend it to your friends or anyone you think might find it useful. You can also rate and review on iTunes, follow our social media, or check out our website at the21strewrite.com. Until next time, goodbye.